0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. A lot of theories designed to help us understand how romantic relationships work and how to establish healthy relationships, like attachment theory, are based on the assumption that everyone is or wants to be monogamous. But that's not the case. Nationally representative surveys find that as many as one in five North American adults have been in some type of sexually open relationship before. So can these theories still help us to understand consensually non-monogamous relationships? Absolutely. In today's episode, we're going to dive into what we know about attachment theory in the context of polyamory. We're going to discuss how opening up your relationship can change your attachment style for better or for worse, how you can cultivate secure attachments with multiple partners at the same time what to do when you and one of your partners have a mismatch in attachment style, how many attachments you can have at any one point in time, and so much more. I am joined by Jessica Fern, a psychotherapist, certified clinical trauma professional, and author of the book PolySecure, Attachment, Trauma, and non She is also the author of the all-new PolySecure workbook. In her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, and people in multi-partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas, helping them to embody new possibilities in life and love. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you're looking to level up your sex life, check out Educated, the Netflix for better sex. Their online courses can help you to increase your sexual knowledge and skills. They can also help you to cultivate more satisfying relationships. They have courses for everything, including those who are interested in exploring the world of consensual non-monogamy. For example, they have classes on how to navigate threesomes, as well as how to open up a relationship. The content is amazing, and there's a lot to learn from these courses. Try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, LayMiller, Miller, as the coupon code. Check the show notes for the link or visit Beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy! If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Attachment theory is one of the most popular frameworks for studying romantic relationships, but it's incredibly mononormative, meaning it's based on this presumption of monogamy, and that monogamy is the only path to creating a secure attachment style. So it sort of implies that if you're into non-monogamy that you must be insecurely attached in some way. So Jessica, what's the truth there? Do you need to be in a monogamous relationship in order to develop secure attachments?
1: Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Just as you don't need just one parent to develop secure attachment to your parents. Secure attachment does not only come from one relationship or having multiple relationships doesn't mean that you have an insecure attachment. And the little bit of research that's done actually shows that People who are non-monogamous tend to be a little bit more securely attached than people who are monogamous, which makes sense because you kind of really have to work. You have to flex your attachment muscles.
0: (laughs) Right. And I think that's super interesting from the standpoint that there's this kind of stereotype that, you know, if you are insecurely attached, that that makes you more drawn to consensual non-monogamy for various reasons, but the reality is that it might look very different. And one other thing that I think is interesting here is my colleague Amy Morris has done some work on attachment and consensual non-monogamy, and I'm sure you're very familiar with her and her work. I am. And one of the interesting things she's found is that sometimes people in consensually non-monogamous relationships actually have different attachment styles with different partners, which I think helps to shift our understanding of attachment style more generally. Because, you know, the previous understanding of attachment was that it was like this cradle to grave phenomenon where you just have one set attachment style throughout your life in all relationships. But it can actually be this very dynamic and fluid thing where you can have different styles with different partners, right?
1: It's incredible. We can have different styles with different partners, which can be surprising to ourselves because we might not have experienced romantically different attachment styles at the same time within ourselves. Right? I find it's hard to tease that apart from just like the new relationship phase can bring up a lot of anxiety. So like, is that an attachment thing or that's actually because we don't have attachment yet. Right? <laughs> so I have more anxious tendencies in a certain period of time. Yeah, but even with the same partner, we can um, have different attachment styles throughout the years.
0: Yeah, and, and that is super interesting in its own right.
1: It is, it, sometimes it flip. I mean, you know, best case scenario it gets more secure, right? but a lot of times it can become more avoidant or we open up and then it becomes more anxious or, you know, it can change for many different reasons. But it's similar to with our parents, right? Most of us would look at our different parents In my case, I had many step parents as well, and I had a different attachment experience with all of them.
0: And you can also think about how even in that relationship with your parents, that attachment style could change over time. Because say, if you were securely attached to one parent, and then you discover that that parent committed infidelity or did something else that kind of creates this new threat or anxiety or rupture, then that can shift. The attachment pattern that you have with them. So I think we need to think about attachment as this kind of fluid and flexible process over the course of our lives rather than this very stable cradle-to-grave phenomenon.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Now, popular discussions of attachment theory often center around the idea that you have to be secure in order to be happy in your relationship, and attachment anxiety and avoidance are often pathologized. Mm -hmm. So as an attachment researcher and therapist, let me ask you this. Do you have to be securely attached in order to be happy?
1: I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think that's the only route to happiness. But I think that people who are aware of their attachment avoidance and attachment anxiety and are working on it, they are happier. Yeah, I think when people are unaware and then it's just sort of driving the, the car of the relationship, they are going to suffer a lot.
0: Yeah. And as I think about this there are some people who just kind of seem to fetishize attachment security and <laughs> say that that's kind of like the only way to be. And they dismiss anybody who might not be completely secure, but you might be missing out on a lot of great relationship opportunities because insecurity and anxiety and avoidance, they bring different things to a relationship. And as long as People in the relationship are cognizant of what their needs are and are willing to meet the other person's needs. You can have great interactions, great meaningful relationships, relationships that give you a different sense of what a relationship can be, you know, if you're just kind of open to exploring that a little bit. So I think that's where sometimes we go a little bit too far in pathologizing any type of attachment that isn't just purely secure.
1: Exactly. Like even for myself in my relationships, I've learned like, oh, I do well when I live with a partner that has secure and more avoidant tendencies because then they, they they let me have a lot of freedom, so to speak. <laughs> like, like, I can have freedom in the space, right? Whereas when I have a partner, I don't live with, and they have secure and more anxious tendencies, like I get a lot of attention. <laughs> <laughs> but it's manageable and I really like it. You know, it's a certain kind of attention that's different and attunement, even like, because as I say in my book, you know, each of these styles, we don't have to just see them as dysfunction. They really have some core positive values and capacities with them. And when someone is in those things, it, it's great.
0: Yeah. And as I said on a previous episode where I talked about attachment style, you know, there are different ways to view each attachment style. And, you know, you can look at something like attachment anxiety as being clingy, or you can look at it as being very in touch with your emotions. And you can look at something like avoidance as being totally detached or just not available or accessible, but you can also look at it as being independent. You know, there are sort of these different frameworks for analyzing attachment styles.
1: Yes, exactly. I see it on the spectrum of like connection and independence or autonomy.
0: Yep. So let's talk about how being polyamorous can change your attachment style. And we kind of hinted about this a little bit earlier. Yeah. But I'm guessing it's possible for people to go off in all directions. So for example, it's easy to see how It might make some people more secure if, say, you open up and you see that your partner is sticking around and knowing that they have other options, but they keep coming back to you, might boost that sense of security. But by the same token, opening up might reveal some anxiety that you didn't know was there and you start getting jealous and that pushes you in the direction of more insecurity. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the ways that you've seen attachment patterns shift in your work with Clients who are pursuing this path of polyamory or consensual non-monogamy.
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I've seen it go all over the place. (laughs) But often, you know, people who have been opening up from monogamy, they realize, oh, this whole monogamous structure was really buffering my insecure attachment, whether it was avoidant, disorganized, or anxious. And so when monogamy is not at play, they have to either face an insecure attachment history that they might not have been super connected to or having worked through, or they realize the relationship they were in itself was actually not as secure as they thought. It's usually surprising and it's pretty common where you start to go, oh, I thought we were secure, but actually there's all of these insecure attachment patterns at play. And then non-monogamy itself can create sort of new attachment ruptures, As we have partners that come and go, as we have, because the frequency usually of your relationships goes up. So some things get better and then you also can have a lot more heartache and hardship. Or in my case, it was very interesting. My attachment challenges that were related to my stepmother never showed up in monogamy. Who was going to trigger it? But now my metamors in non-monogamy were like triggering the hell out of my insecure, disorganized attachment challenges that I like that history with my stepmother. So it's just like, oh, wow. Okay. New triggers. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing too, is that as new people come into our partner's lives, let's say our partner might unintentionally be less available. And we've become accustomed to a certain frequency of attention and availability and access to them. And they're dating someone else and they're just not as available as they were before. And that can start to create this anxious attachment with that person. Our nervous system starts to scream in attachment protest. Like, where are you? Where are you going?
0: Yeah, and I think this reminds me of something you talk about in your book, which is where people's journey is not necessarily linear and it's often circuitous and different people might be on sort of different journeys, you know, within the same relationship. So, for example, when a couple, say, opens up their relationship and one partner finds that they have a lot of potential dating and sexual opportunities and the other partner finds themselves very limited, you know, they might start to feel like that situation is unfair. You can have the attachment anxiety start to emerge in that case because it doesn't seem equitable in that particular case. So, you know, there's all kinds of new contextual features that get thrown at you that you have to find some way to navigate through.
1: Exactly. And one of the the last kind of hardest one to navigate through is we can start to get this um, disorganized attachment with the partner we opened up with. Mm-hmm. So especially previously when they were our go-to person, like, oh, I can tell you anything. I do tell you everything. <laughs> and now I can't. Like there's certain things that aren't appropriate to share in this relationship. Or the things you're telling me are triggering the shit out of me, which is my work ultimately, right? But we start to associate our partner or their phone, right, with threat. And so the person that we want comfort from is simultaneously the person we're feeling threatened by. And so that's very difficult to sort of have to go through that with somebody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people can kind of relate to that. And, you know, that can happen too, I think, in a monogamous relationship where if, say, infidelity emerges, then you can kind of have that same sort of dynamic emerge where that, you know, anytime their partner gets a text message, there's that constant sort of worry that are they cheating again or something like that. So
1: Yeah, if they're taking too long in the bathroom, who are you texting in there? (laughs) Yep. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So... You described the concept of being polysecure as having secure attachments with yourself and with all of your partners. So let me ask, what does it mean to be securely attached to yourself? And if this is something that you don't have, how can you cultivate a healthier relationship with yourself?
1: Yeah. So secure attachment to ourself is being in relationship well, with our own attachment history, so having whatever history we came from, you know, having worked through and getting that earned secure, which is, is really powerful. But I also see it as, oh, I have relationships with all the multiple parts of myself, the ones I like and the ones I don't like. And that I don't need the external experience of my partner's validation to f- be in connection to my own self-worth as a human. So even if I have no partners telling me I'm great, You know, I can still have connection to my fundamental okayness. So it's really that I am okay, I think is a huge piece. And often that's what keeps people in abusive relationships, right? Or in relationships that aren't working for them, even if they're not abusive is, do you know you'll be okay? You will be okay, (laughs) even without this person. So that's how I conceive of it. In the book, I go through, you know, the HEARTS acronym, of here are some steps, right? Of, of how we are, H is, you know, being here and present with ourself. E is express delight. That's sort of our inner dialogue, right? Have we worked through our inner critic and shame, basically, right? Do we have enough positive esteem for ourselves? A is attunement. So how much are we in touch with our feelings and our needs and tuning into those feelings and needs? R is is uh, rituals and routines, you know, what are the ways that we stay connected to ourselves, stay healthy, you know, manage work, parenting, relationships, hobbies, like what are the habits of sleep and waking and eating and all that stuff. And then T is turning towards ourself after conflict, you know, so when we fall short of our own standards in life, you know, how do we relate to ourself? So instead of that inner critic, can we have more of like an inner coach that helps us through instead of just beats us down?
0: I think that's all so important because when we talk about attachment style and attachment patterns... People tend to think about that as your relationships with external people. But that relationship with yourself is so important, so crucial. And we've said it before many times on this show that you have to work on yourself first before you work on your relationships. Because if you don't have that good relationship with yourself, it's really hard to make those external changes that you need to make because there's still going to be this unmet need that you have.
1: Exactly. And But I would say both. Yeah, (laughs) because, you know, it's only as a child, we get it through relationship first that we then can internalize it and have it for ourselves. So sometimes as adults, when we have never gotten as a child, like, we do need to hear certain things or have certain experiences to then go, okay, I am valuable, you know, and then it can be internalized. So it's a both.
0: It is definitely a both. So since we talked about working on the self, let's talk about cultivating more secure attachments with multiple partners. And one of the challenges of this in consensual non-monogamy is that there are lots of structural things in relationships that promote security for a lot of us that are hard to share with multiple partners, such as a primary residence or your finances or a marriage certificate.
1: Legal marriage, right?
0: And so these are things that are symbolic of someone's commitment to you in the eyes of many people. So when you share say, all of those things with one partner, but you don't share them with others, what else can you do to build up that sense of security?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Of course, you can talk about the structural elements. (laughs) There's a lot of people that are doing super creative things, like with poly-friendly lawyers and mediators. It's really amazing creating, you know, trusts and multiple people that inherit things and all of that. So you can get creative and, and have structural things, but You can't always have all those things with multiple people. And so really looking at what is relational security, not just structural security, right? How are we showing up for each other? How does it feel to be in relationship together? Am I safe with you? Can I trust you? Can you trust me? You know, are we available and attuned? So those are the important pieces, you know, the safe haven and secure baseness of a relationship. So really exploring well for one do we want to be attachment relationships you don't have to be (laughs) not all of our polyamorous non-monogamous partners are going to be attachment based so even just having that dialogue with somebody you know is this the kind of relationship that we want that we are showing up for each other's attachment needs doesn't have to be but once you get there, then really going through okay what how do I need these specific attachment needs right what does availability look like for me what does it look like for you and so on
0: you know you brought up something there that I was going to ask about anyway, because I think it's really interesting, this idea that not all of your relationships need to be attachment-based, right? And that you can have some relationships where you're less entwined with those partners. Yeah. But some people might see this as perplexing, right? They might find it hard to imagine how you could opt out of attachment because they only know how to do relationships when they're all in. So can you tell us a little bit more about this idea? You know, how do you start a relationship with someone where attachment and doesn't show up.
1: Right. And of course, there's going to be bonding and connection, right? But you can say, um, yeah, I'm not going to be the person or I'm not available to be the person that's like, can show up every day, messaging through the day, be your emergency contact, or be one of those types of people in your life. But when we're together, I can tune into you. We're going to have a great time. I'll be fully present. But it's not necessarily going to be the consistent meeting of those needs. And I see when people lead with that, it can be refreshing to know, okay, great, you're not available for that level of emotional involvement. But the time we have will be what it is.
0: As you say that, I guess another way to think about it is that you just have more boundaries with some partners. and boundaries can be a great thing because they define the structure of the relationship and how you are and are not available to each other. And I think in polyamorous and any other type of consensually non-monogamous relationship, having those boundaries drawn with each partner is super important because if you have multiple partners and you don't have really clearly defined boundaries with all of them, that can get very overwhelming very quickly, potentially.
1: Exactly. And I think what happens for a lot of people that were married and opening up is they kind of sometimes realize, oh, there's some of these expected (laughs) marriage like things that I don't even want to do anymore, even though we might still be primary partners or non-hierarchical partners, you know, so there can be an unraveling of that even when it was before. And sometimes that's very healthy and it also can feel hard
0: yeah yeah boundaries are healthy i think that's an important thing to remember exactly now let's say you begin a relationship with someone who has an attachment style that is very different from you can that connection still work if you have these different styles and what do you do if you and your partner have kind of a big mismatch in attachment?
1: Well, usually the mismatch, the opposite styles like each other, right? And in the the literature and the attachment world, they say the hardest one is like two people who have the more avoidant dismissive style. They just don't usually have enough glue to keep them together. Cause you do need someone who's sort of turning towards. And that's the classic pairing is someone who's more anxious with someone who's more dismissive. But then it doesn't work eventually because one person's doing all the emotional labor for the relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's just ideally being aware of what our tendencies are and knowing like, okay, I tend to be more withdrawn. I have to learn how to lean in a little bit more, you know, or to be saying to your more withdrawn partner, these are the ways that I really like how you show up or would like you to show up more. And if someone has a tendency to be more of the leaning in or grasping, you know, okay, how do I lean back a little bit? How do I wait? (laughs) So it definitely can work Um, with two people who are more anxious. Sometimes they can get too involved, too fast, too committed, and get themselves into trouble that way, or they can get, you know, really codependent and enmeshed quickly.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, sometimes having the same attachment style as your partner can be problematic. Sometimes having a totally different style can be problematic. Sometimes these things work out great. It's hard to say, right, because yeah. different styles kind of like work for different people because they're creating these very different dynamics.
1: Exactly. I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but as a female bodied person, my attachment style changes throughout my menstrual cycle. (laughs) So that's the reality, like it's still me. (laughs) But depending on where I am, I might feel way more secure, more withdrawn, or more kind of like anxious, disorganized. Yep. But, you know, I'm tracking it, which makes it that I'm not run by it.
0: Right. And that's so interesting, too. And it's another dimension of kind of how our attachment style can be fluid. And I have to imagine, too, that when you layer in polyamory with, say, pansexuality or bisexuality, you might also have different patterns when maybe you're with partners of certain genders. Because people might have different patterns of relating based on, you know, different kinds of people that they're attracted to.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it can be surprising too sometimes when you have been in a more secure dynamic with a partner and you see them, they've been more secure with you and you see them getting very anxious with somebody else. It can be confusing. Yep. So that too, watching our partner's attachment style change can be a surprise. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, lots of things can be a surprise right, in lots these relationships.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> and they can be good surprises. They could be bad surprises. It's just all the surprises.
1: Keeps us on our toes.
0: Sure does. So I have one more question for you. And it's about this concept that you bring up in your book that... I've certainly heard others talk about as well, but I think it's really important to address, which is polysaturation, which is when you've reached your limit for attachment-based relationships. And this raises the question of how many attachment-based relationships can a person actually have? And how do you know when you've reached the saturation
1: point. Yeah. And in the book I get into sort of like it's life saturation. That's what we need to be tracking, right? Not just how many partners. So I have, but what other things, what other life situations, work, children, elderly parents, having an autoimmune condition, you know, being in school, whatever it is, right. That like, how much time do I have available? And there's no one number, but I think I want people to just be tracking that for themselves, right? Is is at what point are you no longer available to the partners that you have or yourself or your life responsibilities? Yeah. And I think it's hard because then when people start to look at it that way, they go, oh, yeah, I can't have as many partners as I'd like, right? Or as maybe I have.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing with our boundaries, with our limits, is that sometimes we don't know what the limits are until we've already exceeded them. Yeah. Because we're not always in tune with what our capacity is for various things. Yeah. And there are some people who will start on this journey of consensual non monogamy and it's just adding a lot of partners very quickly without taking the time to see how they all develop and how they all interwork with one another and that's where you can start to run into trouble you know it's often better i think to go slow (laughs) rather than kind of bring in a whole bunch of all at once
1: exactly yeah but and the signs i'd say you know you start feeling overwhelmed regularly (laughs) not just when there's a difficult conversation or a fight with a partner but like you're on a regular basis you're feeling overwhelmed with managing the logistics of your polyamorousness (laughs) Or starting to feel resentful, starting to even feel yourself like get avoidant because it's just too much or having more anxiety because it feels like it's too much. Sometimes it's not until people are open or non-monogamous that they realize they have to have themselves as a partner. (laughs) And they realize, oh, I need a date night, too, that's just quiet for myself or that isn't about making, you know, being with another partner, right? That all of my time is sort of accounted for by other people. So that's an important thing, too, when you start to, like, feel that internal pressure.
0: It's so important. You know, when you're counting your number of partners, start with the first one being that relationship that you have with yourself. Yeah, because that sometimes gets neglected. And that's true in both monogamous relationships and consensually non monogamous relationships. And if you're not cultivating that relationship with yourself, you can run into a lot of problems. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jessica. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, just my website, jessicafern.com.
0: And can you also tell us about your latest book, which is the Polysecure Workbook? And is it available? And where can people get it?
1: Yeah, so it is available the end of November, 2022. People can get it sort of on all their regular places, Amazon. Thorn Tree Press is now Thorn Apple, so there's been a new branding and transition of my publisher. So it's under Thorn Apple Press. And then in 2023, there'll be my next book is uh, Polly Wise, and we will cover some of the things we talked about today.
0: And can you also tell us just a little bit about how the workbook is different from the book Polly Secure? So what is it going to offer to the reader?
1: It's going to offer you like tons of questions and prompts and exercises. So it goes along. It's sort of a companion with the book. Um, But I think some people, you know, we do summaries of the concepts. So some people could just jump in even if they didn't read the book. But yeah, just a lot more exercises for yourself to develop that secure attachment. You go through your own attachment history with all your different attachment figures And then looking at your non monogamous experiences and then non monogamous relationships and what they need, and then that secure attachment with self peace as well. So, yeah, and lots lots about boundaries. Lots about boundaries. And
0: I love that it's a book that really gives you that chance to kind of explore this relationship you have with yourself and the relationships that you have with other people, because it gives you those prompts to really think and dive down into how does this apply in my own life? And it's got me thinking about how I need to do a a workbook for tell me what you want at some point where people can do the same thing with their sexual fantasies.
1: Oh, you do. Yes, I will buy that workbook. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will give it to all my clients, too.
0: <laughs> well, it's coming at some point. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here.
1: Yeah, thank you, Justin.
0: Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and eventually the workbook will be coming. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.